Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Starting this week, we're launching a new show on the Ringer Dish feed, recapping the return of Survivor for its special 40th season. This season features 20 previous winners of Survivor competing for $2 million, the largest cash prize in reality TV show history. Riley McAtee and a rotating guest from the Ringer staff will recap every Thursday. So make sure you subscribe to the Ringer Dish feed for shows like Jam Session, Tea Time, and the new Survivor Recap Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air, yo. This is Black. What am I doing? I just go crazy sometimes. Lester Holt is going to be my guest today, the anchor of the NBC Nightly News. He doesn't do, I think this is his first podcast. He doesn't do a lot of these things. So it was great getting him in here. We had a real fun conversation uh, a little bit ago. And um, I think you guys enjoy it. He's uh, He doesn't like talking about, um, well, let me put it like this. He's very much interested in not having his opinion out there. He doesn't feel like that is his job. So, you know, how do you have that conversation in a world of opinions? And I think uh, I think you'll enjoy it. You know, it's kind of interesting, but, you know, it's kind of what he does. So I respect him for that. So we had the big debates this week. I'm sure you guys saw that. Uh, wait, first let me talk about this. So, you know, I don't like talking about everything Trump says because my head would explode if you talk about it. But this one is hilarious, you guys. Where he actually had a rally yesterday. You probably saw this, where he's slamming the Academy Awards. He trolls this man trolls everything. Like seriously, what is his problem? He's saying how horrible it was that a South Korean film wins Best Picture. When do we have to guard films from the influences outside of America? I don't understand this. And he's like, why can't we have Gone with the Wind back? How much signaling does he have to do for racism? I mean, let's have let's have some slavery back, boss. I mean, Trump is so out of control, you guys. I just don't get this. I just don't get why people love his kind of rhetoric when it comes in these areas. I mean, it was so this take makes no sense at all. This overguarding of Americanism or whatever, it makes no sense. We're talking about films. I mean, seriously, what are you guarding here? I understand if we're guarding American jobs and that sort of thing and, you know, making sure that people can make a decent living here in America. You know, the America First slogan has a lot of issues with it, but not in fucking films, you guys. Nobody gives a shit about that. We're talking films. It means nothing. It is not an issue. And the fact that people would applaud that just shows how empty his whole rhetoric is with that. So I don't even want to get started on that. You know, I, my head explodes just thinking about this stuff because it just really points out how vapid a lot of those um, America first arguments are that aren't really about America. It's really about the slogan, you know, and the sloganeering, you know. And I know that kind of thing happens on both sides in different ways, but he is the president. He has the bully pulpit, you know, and the things that he cheers on are either so vapid and insignificant or our virtue signaling in the other way for the things that people don't want to come back. It just it just blows me away. All right, so the debate. Man, this is one of the most fun debates we've had in a while, right? I mean, Elizabeth Warren was on fire. 
It was amazing to watch. It was so much fun, but it was kind of sad, too. It's like she brought some gasoline and a match. She's like, no, niggas, we're going to have to deal with what I'm doing up here. We're not trying to have this other conversation. I'm tired of people ignoring me. It seemed like the press was ignoring Elizabeth Warren, and she was not having it. And it was it was so amazing to see her go after Bloomberg, who did not know what he was getting into, you know. Bloomberg's got that authoritarian kind of streak in him. You know, he's been in that billionaire bubble, you know, and that sort of thing. He's used to telling people they can't drink big gulps and all that kind of stuff, right? And he was not ready for Elizabeth Warren. She was not having that. And it was such a joy to watch. Now, what's really going to happen, though, now? Does it mean anything, you know, is one of the ways that I was looking at this. You know, as interesting as it was for the Democrats to keep, (laughs) you know, pretty much destroying themselves— And by destroying themselves, it is kind of a circular firing squad, a lot of these debates, you know, as enjoyable as it is, by the way. And by the way, let me make sure I'm putting this in the right perspective. My take on this is that I don't disagree with some of the exposure of people's weaknesses in certain areas or whether they fell short in areas, especially when it comes to race or, or some of these things, you know. My whole point is, what are we trying to do here? Because I think the Democrat Party is really in a lot of trouble right now. And it kind of mirrors what was happening in the Republican Party when Trump was elected, where all those Republican establishment people just fell by the wayside. And Trump, who really isn't a Republican, you know, he's not even a Democrat. He is what uh, uh, Rod Blagovich, who Trump just— let out of prison or whatever, called himself a Trumpocrat because he was a Democrat and he didn't want to be a Republican. But Trump really is a Trumpocrat. I mean, that's not an unfair thing. He's not really a Republican. He really is a Trumpist. You know, he really, to me, does things to glorify Trumpism, you know, anything that that um, glorifies his worldview, that sometimes the Venn diagram includes things Republicans care about and sometimes it doesn't, you know. So the Democrats are now in this situation where they're facing kind of the same thing the Republicans are facing in a different way. And I made a joke. I was on uh, John Lovett's podcast, Lover to Leave It, where <laughs> I was joking with the audience, which I believe this. is like, Democrats, can we stop trying to prove how racist you are right now? Can we stop trying to do that? Here's the answer. Yes, you are racist. Let's get past that. There's a racist in the White House, which we need to focus on. Let's focus on getting him out, not on how racist everybody is, because there's been a case made at some point that every one of those candidates is racist and that we shouldn't vote for them. You know, whether it was Kamala Harris going after Biden for his busing thing, whether it's people talking about Bernie and the Bernie bros, whether it's uh, now Bloomberg and the stop and frisk, whether it's Buttigieg and his firing of a black police chief and his handling of, of race in South Bend, or even Klobuchar and, you know, her handling of some things as the DA. And even Kamala Harris got it herself, you know, for when she was district attorney. And it's this whole thing about this racial purity test. And the fact of the matter is most of these politicians are blind when it comes to race. Most of them are. That's a fact. Most of America is, you guys. That's a fact. Let's stop acting like this is new information and that we should be shocked that there's gambling going on in this institution. I just saw Casablanca, so I had to, had to quote it. That's not the issue. The issue right now is not how racist Democrats are, okay? That's not the issue, guys. Who's going to lead the party? Are we even going to have a party? Like I said, I'm a Democrat. 
you know, I would like to see a Democrat in the White House, but I don't even know if a Democrat is going to be in the White House if Trump is out. And is that important? I don't know. I've had Bernie Sanders on my show. I love Bernie. I think he's great. I think he's very authentic. But he's not He's not even in the Democratic Party. I find that very interesting that he has most of the support from the people who vote Democratic. But what does that tell us about the party establishment? I mean, is the Democratic Party going away is what I'm asking. Then you have Bloomberg, who's supposed to be this savior, right? He's a Republican, for Christ's sakes. He's not in the party. The two people who are getting the most talked about right now because people aren't really talking about Elizabeth Warren. They're not really talking about Klobuchar. They don't really, aren't really talking about Buttigieg, you know, in the same way. And Biden just vanished. He was like that hope of the party or whatever. And it's interesting when you look at the way that Biden vanished. He became so insignificant. And I'm not sure if it was just himself as a candidate, but almost what he represented just became invisible. Like, what does he even represent? You know what I mean? That's what we're at right now. Like, Sanders, it's clear what he represents. He represents, to me, the direction of the youth movement in the Democratic Party. But this may become a new party. I don't even know, you know. You know, they're calling it democratic socialism, which is what it may be. But it's certainly seeing the government in a different role. I don't think Bloomberg has a movement behind him. But it's amazing that he's presenting this alternative for the people who should see Biden as the alternative. Like, why is Biden not the alternative? Why is it Bloomberg? That's fascinating to me. It's not his personality. <laughs> it's certainly not that. You know, he's certainly not a progressive. Yes, he's given a lot of money to climate change. He ran New York City. But other than his ads, why is he getting more oxygen than Biden? Is Biden just that horrible a candidate? Or is it something about the party itself? I think what we're seeing is something about the party itself right now. And not knowing, the party doesn't really know who it is right now. If we're getting, I don't know if that metaphor works or whatever. But that's what's going to be interesting. I told you I'm going to try to cover this from a different perspective. My perspective right now is something's happening in the party, you guys. I don't know if the identity of the party I don't know if the Democratic Party knows exactly what it is right now and what it is really willing to stand for. Here's what to watch out for. Watch out for the Democratic establishment to undermine Bernie Sanders, because I think the Democratic establishment has an issue with Sanders. And I don't think that issue is just related to electability. I think it is related to who the party is existentially, you know, and that's going to be interesting. You know, Bernie's going to have a fight on his hands. You know, it's he gets if he does well on Super Tuesday and wins. I'm I'm doing this podcast before we do Nevada in South Carolina. If he wins that, he he's going to be on a road to the nomination, and it's going to be interesting to see how the party, how the party reacts to that, because the party may be in a different position than the people, and we haven't been in that position in a while. You know, where the party is at odds with what the people want. Guys, can you imagine if we go to a broker convention? Like if Bernie doesn't get enough delegates and they choose somebody other than Bernie Sanders, there's going to be, it's going to be nasty. We may be getting to that, but who are they going to pick? It, they're not going to pick Bloomberg at the convention. That is not going to happen. People think Hillary's going to come back riding on a horse. I don't think that's going to happen. We have to change the rules so Obama can come back, you guys. This is what I'm saying, you know. But this is this is the thing to look out for. And this is the thing that I'm going to cover is the party itself. What's happening to the party? Because it's fracturing to me. And it is interesting to see. And you can watch it. And by the way, this is if people want to 
know why Warren is being treated the way she's being treated. They think she's being ignored. I think it has more to do with her writing in the Sanders lane than sexist issues that people are concerned about. And I understand why I'm concerned about that. And believe me, my radar would go off on that. But I think it's the other thing. I don't think she has been representing what the party establishment wants her to represent, which is why Klobuchar gets more oxygen, because she does represent that lane. You know? I mean, there's your answer right there. Who's representing that lane? And I think it's Amy Klobuchar. It's not Elizabeth Warren. Now, when Elizabeth Warren is just about corruption, she is in more in that lane. But when she got more in this other, in the Bernie lane, you know, she was just another version of Bernie for a lot of people. I'm not saying that's who she is, you know. But for some people, it kind of represented that. She's at odds with the party. So it'll be interesting to watch this. That's my take, motherfuckers. <laughs> All right. We got Lester Hope coming up. Real exciting contest coming up with Nevada and South Carolina. So we'll be able to weigh in that pretty soon and see what happens. And Super Tuesday, all of this, this is a very exciting month coming up in politics, you guys. All right, welcome back, everybody. Oh my God, we have one of the most incredible voices in all. In I don't know if showbiz is the right world, in all of news and everything. It's the uh, anchor of the nightly news. You know him as the great Lester Holt. Lester Holt, welcome back on the air. Thank you. I'm just a pretty voice to you, aren't I? You're a pretty voice. That's it. That's why we wanted to bring you in. We were just talking a minute ago. Um, yes. You know, sometimes people stop me on the street, but not right. necessarily because they recognize sure. my face. I'll say something, and, Absolutely. They, and they, they turn around. And I never think of my voice as being recognizable. But Well, it's interesting because, um, like, when I was thinking of you, you know, I feel like your voice is as much in a relationship with people <laughs> as your whole persona, which well, is kind of interesting. Have, people say you have a calming voice. I'm like, yeah. am I putting you to sleep? Because that's, <laughs> not, that's not really the, the point of the, uh, <laughs> of the whole presentation. Not quite what you were going for. But there is something. I, th- I think you are a soothing voice for a lot of people. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm generally a calm guy. In sure. fact, the, the more things become chaotic, the more I tend to focus right. and kind of drill down. So I guess yeah. that, that could be Some asset. people call it a sociopath. Yeah. Some people call it. <laughs> no, but I, mean, I think it's probably an asset doing what I do. Because, oh, completely. Uh, you you know, have to. A lot of the news that comes out of my sure. mouth, even even myself internally, I'm going, right. oh, my God. But I can't yeah. do that on TV. Well, some of it is so sad, too, and tragic. You know, there's we get caught up in the hysteria of politics and that sort of thing. But there's a, a whole range of news that has to kind of process through you. Each day, like, how do you handle that? Just as a just as a human being. Well, just, I mean, in general, you know, we have to remember mm-hmm. nightly news is a is a is a brand that you know we're not just politics. You know, right. people want to sit down and just kind of get a take on the day. Um, yeah. you know, by the time they sit down with us, they they know the big stories, but they mm-hmm. want to hear our our take on it. Right. And 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 what we have to say. So I, I go in with that in mind. But yeah, some days some days the news is so heavy, and I'll sit there and think, man, it's like nobody lived. Mm-hmm. In this broadcast, or this is going wrong, or you know, coronavirus, or this, and you do have to kind of stand back and, and as we produce the show, sometimes take that in mind that mm-hmm. people need some balance, yeah. some sense of uh, you know rhythm to the broadcast, and we like to end on a on a note that you know make you smile or or make you feel good about people because mm-hmm. some you know, some days you may you may have this sense of wow everyone's just you know not not playing the game. And we want to do stories that kind of reinforce the notion that this, this is a lot more good out there than bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there are selfless people doing some really terrific things, and we want to you know, take time and salute them. So you feel like there's kind of a mission statement you kind of have in nightly news 
And by nightly news, we, we could say the the uh, traditional news broadcast that people get, like at 6.30 usually. Right, you know, 6.30, 5.30, uh, depending on where you live. Traces his lineage back to Cronkite and, you know, those people. That gives us something different than the other news that, say, we're getting on television. Is that a distinction with intent? I think it is. I mean, mm-hmm. we recognize that cable really has kind of developed mm-hmm. its own thing. Cable, it can be provocative. Uh, it invites opinions and, and uh, you know, even debate. Uh, you know, we've, we've got 22, 23 minutes every night. It's not a lot yeah, of time. Yeah, that's not a lot of time, really. And, and so, again, we're not pretending like you haven't heard these stories mm-hmm. of you know, what the president may have may have tweeted or, you know, what's happened with the coronavirus. But it's it's our chance to kind of, um, you know, one of my predecessors used to say, you know, curate the day mm-hmm. and, and kind of walk you through it. And here's what had happened. You know, here's what it means to you. Here's what it what, what could happen. Um our viewers, we, we recognize, you know, people that are really intensely, you know, they want a steady diet of politics. There's plenty of options out there, mm-hmm. but we want to be, you know, a broadcast that's kind of a broadcast of record. Here's what, here's what today looked like. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because news has changed so much. You know, that used to be the default news. And yeah, now yeah. We get it so much. One of my favorite movies is Network, which kind of predicted the whole demise of news as news and <laughs> turned into news as entertainment. I'm from Los Angeles, so it was always entertainment, <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, I used to work in. I used to. I I used to work. Yeah. right across the street. Um, uh, the CBS station Channel Two used to be right. At KNXT. Right? Yeah, it used to yeah. literally be across the street from where right. we are right now. That's where you started in the early eighties. Yeah, I mean, I actually yeah. started. Uh, I did radio as a teenager in Sacramento, wow. and, and then moved to San Francisco and did radio. Yeah, and then my my first TV news job, believe it or not, was at the uh, CBS station in New York City. I was uh, twenty two years old. Wow, and, and I'm reporting in uh, in New York. And, now, you knew at a pretty young age this was something you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I I you know I I love news. Um, my like what what favorite. what happened? Why did you love news? Did that was something your parents kind of you did, know? I or? think it was just big events like. You Mm-hmm. That occurred in my lifetime, you know, landing on the moon. Right. Um, you know, Which since, some people think didn't happen. Yeah, well, well that's, <laughs> that's another story yes. for another podcast. Right. Uh, no, um, mm-hmm. you know, big events like that, the you know, Nixon impeachment. Sure. You know, they, these things were on, and they kind of, you know, yeah. my parents were interested in what was happening in the world. My father had gone to Vietnam, so that was kind of a, a big deal mm-hmm. in our house. So there was that. And then I had an older brother who got into broadcasting at a very young age, and he snuck me into a radio station in Anchorage, Alaska, wow. uh, when my father was stationed up there in the Air Force. And but Was he delivering the news, or was he doing something he else? Was, um, he was playing records at okay, night. Okay, he's on, a DJ. On, yeah. On, yeah, DJing, mm-hmm. and uh, he snuck me in. I was just like, wow, this is so cool. So uh-huh. I got the bug, and then, uh, you know, like him, I, you know, I used to take a cassette recorder and a newspaper and my— you know, play a forty-five. Mm-hmm. That's a record for those who don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, and I would sit there in my bedroom and record. He didn't say seventy-eight, you guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would record. You know, talking out the records. You know, hey, it's sure. Lester Holt with the top hits right now. And you know, and then I would go and read the news and I would right. listen to the tapes and study. And I I would uh, living up in Sacramento. Um, you know, I would kind of talk my way into radio stations, mm-hmm. going to hang out and watch you. And then I. You know, got an internship at a local TV station. So things just kept, you know, falling my way, and uh, mm-hmm. and I knew this is what I wanted to do. And did you see where you are now as a destination, or were you just more like, look, I love reporting. I want to be a reporter. I just want to travel the world and do this type of thing. Did, did you have yeah. long-term goals, or this is— as soon as you got in it, you're like, this is where I want to be. No, that's a good question. I thought mm-hmm. when I first got in, I really wanted to stay in local news. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that— uh, at some point, I'm sure, like every you know young news person, I probably aspired. Well, someday maybe I'll be in mm-hmm. one of those top positions. But as life kind of moved on in my career arc, there came to be a point where it didn't seem like that was going to be possible. And not in a, I didn't feel bad. I had uh, 
by that point at NBC, I was anchoring the weekend edition of Nightly News, the weekend edition of Today Show. You're talking about Dateline. the early aughts now, right? Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, Dateline. Mm-hmm. So, and I was, you know, traveling the world on, on major stories. So sure. I was living the dream. So it wasn't a sense of bitterness, but I mm-hmm. looked around. Um, there's not many people doing this job. Yeah. All of them seem to be fully entrenched and, you know, weren't going to be going anywhere and they're around my same age. So it's like was, rent control, you know. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> well, look, this as far as I go, that's a pretty cool thing. So sure. um, when this this job, you know, was presented to me, it was kind of a, you know, didn't see it coming mm-hmm. and accepted it. And, and even now, I think, uh, you know, every day, I, I this is just an amazing experience to have this you know, have this job and, yeah. you know, the kind of support we have and resources and working for a great company. It's pretty awesome. How do you fight, um, you know, the emergence of Fox News kind of, I think what people don't talk about the emergence of Fox News, so how it kind of shone a light on what people felt was implicit bias that was in the news itself that had kind of a left-wing bias, you know. I mean, people look at the news back then, you know, we always look at things with halcyon eyes, you know, the halcyon days or that type of thing. But there is a case that it did have kind of a left wing, and left wing's a little harsh, but certainly, let's say, a liberal bias, let's say. And Fox News kind of came in to kind of fill that void. But now all news, you know, that's cable, seems to take positions. Like, how do you avoid having bias? Like, do you have a an eye when you see bias in news reporting? Because you certainly, the Lester Holt that I see feels like someone that doesn't want um, overt bias in news reporting. Is, yeah, is that fair? It's, it, it is fair. And I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, I think uh, Fox News came at a time, positioned itself. I used to love their slogan because to yeah. me it was a mission statement for all of us. You know, sure. Fair, fair and balanced. Absolutely. Who, you know, who doesn't want to be fair and balanced? Uh, and, and so I always thought, wow, that's they're, they're taking our mission statement and, and turning it into a slogan. But and it had some wind behind it in yeah, the beginning. Yeah, and, and I recognize, and we hear it all the time, is left you know, bias right. of, of the mainstream media. And and my reaction to that is, um, as journalists, we're exposed to things, you know, face-to-face. You know, yeah. um, other people can talk about homeless and poverty. You know, we're, we're out there in the streets, you know, seeing it. Uh, the death penalty, uh, you know, I, I was a witness at an execution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so many of the things happening that we're, we're we get a front row uh, seat to it. And so— you know, it's – I don't want to say it's an agenda, but these are things we can talk about in, mm-hmm. a, in a very informed way. And I think sometimes that's perceived as, you know, leaning in one direction or the other. I, I'm I'm well aware – and people stop me sometimes and go, oh, I like you because I don't know which side you're on. And I'm <laughs> like, well, that's pretty cool because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not on anybody's side. Uh, I always tell people that, you know, I'm not a statue. I'm a human being. I have mm-hmm. opinions about everything. Trust me. That's my wife. Um, but that's irrelevant when I when I go to work. Uh-huh. You know, I'm a professional. Um, it's, this is what I do. Um, I love an informed conversation. I love to hear people disagree uh-huh. in a respectful manner because that's how we learn and that's how we sometimes change our view. And I remind people that news isn't supposed to make you feel good. I'm not. My my job is not to validate your worldview every night. My job sure. is to kind of tell you how we how we believe it to be and what what we know and what we don't know. Um, and sometimes the news is going to make you want to throw your shoe at the TV. I mean, mm-hmm. It just is. Um, um, you know, blaming the messenger, we recognize it's, you know, a time-honored, you know, uh, approach. But, you know, we've got to go out there and, and, and tell the stories every day and, 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 you know, and be as transparent as we can about, you know, our, our sources and, and how we've learned this information and, uh, and hope that, you know, the 75-year legacy of a broadcast like ours means something to folks and they understand mm-hmm. that we're out there, you know, trying to – 
to, to continue at a high level. Do you ever feel that people paint unfair things on you as well? Like they ascribe positions that they feel that you have? That, yeah, I, and mm-hmm. I think the other thing is um, about the nature of television right now is, um, especially, I think you see this in cable, you mm-hmm. know, they have um, sometimes hosts with opinions, but they bring on guests as well with opinions. And that doesn't necessarily represent the opinion of the, of the broadcast itself, sure. but you tend to, well, the media said, well, the media said that, and mm-hmm. maybe it's, it's a guest. Um, you know, I, I, listen, I think, um, I watch a lot of cable news, and I think it's. Do you, you know, do you watch? It? I, I do, and I think it's fascinating. I love to. Uh-huh. I love to hear the exchange of ideas. <laughs> Does your head explode sometimes? No, I mean, you know, sometimes like, wow, I wish I could get into that discussion. Oh, that's but that, hilarious. But that's yeah. that's not what I do, and so I think it it fills a vital role. But what we do also fills a vital role, and that's to be, you know, just as I said, this this broadcast of record and kind of walk you through right. the day, and and we will, you know, offer analysis sometimes based on mm-hmm. our experience and and our ability to get up close to some of these issues. Well, do you ever feel frustrated then? I mean, if you do watch some of that, do you ever feel frustrated that, man, sometimes I wish I had a show where it was just my opinion. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? No, no, I don't. I don't think anybody Because like, I got a lot to say about this you know, Because I have all, this whole opinion thing in general, I think, sure. that— uh, you know, you see people get slapped down for something they, they sure. tweeted, and some, and sometimes I want to tell people, you know, the world doesn't need to hear your thoughts. You know, I mean, sure. I, you know, this morning I read the paper and I went through the night. I had thoughts about things, and oh, that's interesting. Oh, gee, yeah. what about that? But doesn't mean I have to go. You know, right? I have to tell the world um, I, what I see. Sometimes it, it brings a lot of you know, misery to people. You know, mm-hmm. for, um, weighing in on things. Sometimes we don't always need to speak up. Mm-hmm. It's good to listen. Oh, completely. <laughs> um, well, it must be frustrating in these times, which is what I'm trying to get at, because there's, like, I can imagine just dealing with the people who are bringing you stories. You have to look at those in a certain way and say, hey, guys, is this the story or is this your opinion? Like, how do you deal with people who are bringing you stories and getting them to understand that difference, you know, from your perspective. Because I'm sure that's got to be an everyday fight. It's an important challenge, right. and that's why we have a robust, um, you know, standards group of people that mm-hmm. we run things through and, and you know, make sure that, you know, we have enough sourcing on a particular story because people do mm-hmm. have agendas. They surely they bring you stories all the time, and, um, you know, we get that, we understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have, you know, got to be in our game all the time, and, you know, that um, – you know, when I got in this business, it was always rushed to be first with the story. And mm-hmm. now, now we're okay being second or third if that's what it takes to make sure we get it right. Um, because, you know, we're in an environment right now. There's not a lot of forgiveness. There is a, uh, a feeling sometimes that, you know, we've got these agendas and we can't ever feed into that. And we recognize that. And, you know, we've always been dedicated to getting it right. But the attention that we get right now demands that we've got to run these things through multiple filters sometimes before we go on the air. Right. What do you what do you think um is do you think the nightly news broadcast um do you feel it has the same importance in people's lives that it used to have or is it is it in a niche position right now? You know, I, I a lot of people say, "Wow, you know, how many more years is nightly mm-hmm. news?" I mean, you, you look at the three broadcasts and you know, you got 20, 21 million people on any given night. Um, still has the most viewers. Still right? has the most viewers. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a sizable number of people. So I think we still hold a relevance. In fact, I think um, maybe we become more valuable in the eyes of some people because mm-hmm. there is such a so much noise out there, right? There's so much information flying at you. you. Think about it from the time you get up in the morning and flip on your phone, do you turn it off at night? I'm assuming you do. Um, someone's telling you what's trending. They're telling you what to think and and what you should be talking about, what you should be listening to. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes that's rich and interesting, but it's really noisy out there. And sometimes you don't know what to believe. And again, as as an organization with a you know a long 
history, I like to think that we're like a I'm mixing my metaphors, but like a, a safe port you can move in from the mm-hmm. storm and and just like, okay, here's what happened. I know it's a lot of stuff flying out there, but this is what what was said. This is what's happening. Yeah. Here's what that could lead to and and be that voice. Do you feel like people really want to have that safe face? Because it's funny, when you look at both sides, <laughs> both sides want to tell us the world is blowing up for different reasons. Yeah. And nobody wants you know? to listen to anybody else's uh yeah. you know, viewpoint, unfortunately. I mean we've um, if you think about it, we've got more tools of communication at our disposal than ever before. But mm-hmm. yet, sometimes the communications is more constricted or restricted than than ever before. Yeah, and how do you deal with? Um, I I would love it if we, there were more stories that dealt with the world. How do you guys handle that balance? Because I don't know how many just regular people are interested in, it, especially Americans. Like when you travel, you see more world stories. You know, maybe that's because of the nature of travel or that type of thing. Do you guys make an effort to give us stories around the world as well? Well, we do. I mean, it depends mm-hmm. what's going on in the world. I mean, there's so much domestic news yeah. um, that, that we're watching. But um, as you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but it is a small world and it's getting smaller. You look at the coronavirus story. Sure. Um, you know, looking at the potential threat of a, you know, a, a pandemic, a global mm-hmm. pandemic. And, you know, we really saw it after 9-11. Suddenly people cared about what was going on in Pakistan. Right. What are the politics of Yeah. yeah. Sure. Who's, you know, who's supporting what? Who's the, mm-hmm. you know, who's the Northern Alliance? I mean, all these things. I remember speaking to a, a, a fifth, I think my son's fifth grade class uh, right after 9-11. They were, you know, downtown Manhattan uh, in Greenwich Village and these kids were asking me questions about all these countries, mm-hmm. you know, and these alliances. And, and, and I remember thinking, wow, this, in this wake of this horrible tragedy, we're now starting to see the world in a different way and understand that all these moving parts ultimately do connect to us. But on a, on a daily basis, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, domestic news certainly is, is the, the, the heaviest part of our diet. But we have a, a robust foreign news operation mm-hmm. and uh, continue to build it up. Uh, based out of London, um, but you know, we've got correspondents around the world, and I will jump on a plane, you know, for major stories, mm-hmm. you know, both here and abroad. Well, you like getting your your hands dirty. <laughs> I do, I, I I do. I uh, I'm a reporter at mm-hmm. heart. Uh, one of my you know, early mentors in this business says, you know, being a reporter is the highest calling in our business. Mm-hmm. I mean, being the anchor, you know, sitting behind the big desk and getting my name on the wall, it's prestigious, and you know, people listen and seem to care what I have to say. Um, but the most exciting moments in my career have not been sitting behind the desk. They've been out in sure. the field, you know, talking to people, experiencing things, and being able to relate them back home in a, in a very personal way. Yeah, one of them was when you embedded yourself in the in the prison for the the Dateline story, yeah. which was kind of an interesting thing to do. There's so many. I mean, Jesus, there's so many layers to, to doing that sort of thing. Here you are, you know, were you, you were the anchor at that time, right? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. only, uh, that was only this past year, um, Angola Prison, right. uh, a notorious place in, in Louisiana. Um, I had been doing more and more stories around the whole criminal justice reform area right. and working with my team. We were wondering, how do, you, how do we advance this conversation and mm-hmm. really, you know, really put a stamp on it? And somebody said, what if we put you in prison? And, you know, it was a back and forth you know, I didn't want to do a stunt. <laughs> Why don't we put you in prison? Yeah. I mean, what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could just kill my contract. You know, put me in prison. No, I, exactly. Um, you know, my main thing is, listen, I don't want this to be a stunt. Like, it's all about Lester going mm-hmm. to prison. I said, we've got to be able to tell people's stories. And so we spent um, two and a half days there, and I spent my nights in a cell. Um, and during the day, I was really, they were they gave us free roam, essentially, around the prison to talk to um, the incarcerated and hear their stories. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I just I just remember for me and hopefully for our viewers, we were able to make these invisible people suddenly visible. Mm-hmm. That yes, they'd done some horrible things. You know, most of them, frankly, were murderers. Um, a lot of them were, you know, arrested when they were 16, 17, I mean, you know, teenagers and looking at you know, life in prison. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we wanted to hear their stories and their journeys inside and what the, and, you know, what the prison was offering them. And, you know, so many things struck me. One of them, <clears throat> excuse me, one of them was meeting a, an 83-year-old guy. I mean, there's a huge geriatric population in prison. Yeah, that's one of the big issues now where is this are these people a threat to society at this point or is it just the nature of punishment itself that someone just needs to yeah. serve out a punishment? And I didn't and we didn't uh-huh. and that wasn't my call to make. What we wanted to do was expose the viewer like, look at these people. You these are people you do not think I don't think of on a daily basis. Uh-huh. And suddenly you're in there and you're talking to them and you realize you know, at one point the guy next to me, uh, the cell next to me, we could kind of hold up a mirror and kind of see each other from the side. You know, we're we're talking about novels or something, and you know, he an author that I had read, and and you know, we're having these conversations. Like these are human beings. I mean, they did some really awful things, and and you know, most of them certainly um, belonged in prison for at some point. But I wanted people to be able to look at them and and be able to approach this with, with a, a different, more open mind. And I was struck by how many people came up to him who I never would have imagined. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, why is that one guy still in prison? He should be out by now. I'm like, is that you talking? Um, but it's um, it's a conversation that America's ready to have right now, this area mm-hmm. of criminal justice reform. And are we doing everything we can to make all of us safer? I think that's the big question. What was it about this issue that drew you to it before you did this? Because it sounds like it was an issue that you cared about or that or that spoke to you. Was there an incident? Was it seeing that the, uh, the person put to death at that point that kind of sparked it was, it, um, it was uh, a number of stories. I'd worked with um, one of our producers, Dan Slepian from Dateline, and mm-hmm. we worked on uh, a couple of different stories of cases where, you know, there appear to be wrongful convictions. And the whole mm-hmm. wrongful conviction thing is its own, you know, own set of uh, uh, of issues. And Absolutely. That people could end up in prison. And the system – and I think what struck me is how long it takes for the system to figure yeah, it out. It's crazy. It doesn't – you know, it's like a it's like an aircraft carrier. You can't turn it around. Quickly. And there's there's not a willingness for people to want to overturn judgments that their DA did, or you know, yeah, it's an institutional uh, thing. You know, they don't want to go against their own. Yeah, you know? one of the stories I'm working right. on that's actually going to air quite soon is on these um, conviction integrity units in mm-hmm. more and more cities. We we focus uh, in Philadelphia, where where the DA's office itself is taking a look at cases that it prosecuted, right, and saying, did we get this right? And going back, and they've uh, – I think they've done over 10 cases so far that where they have – people have been let out of prison because they realize they got it wrong. Right. So there's and, – and there's uh, I think at least 50 of these around the country. Some are more active and, and more mm-hmm. successful than others. But it recognizes the sense of let's, let's, let's make sure we, we're doing everything we can to make sure the right people are behind bars. Yeah. And what was it about actually being in there that if – did that – change your opinion about anything when when you were in the prison itself? I don't know that it changed my opinion. It got mm-hmm. me thinking more about this about this notion mm-hmm. of who belongs there and how long do they uh, belong there. Mm-hmm. And it also got me to look at it through a, a different lens, which is the, you know, forget about whether they're being punished enough. Is punishing them this way making us safer? Mm-hmm. And what we discovered is— What do you the, mean by that? Like, in other words, like making— I mean, I mean why, why do we send people to prison? Do we send mm-hmm. them there— because we're mad at them, that you know they've done something horrible, mm-hmm. and, you know, lock you know, lock them up and throw the key away, or is it the idea to reform them, or mm-hmm. is it to make society safer? And and what I found is that you know most people will say well, we want to be safer, 
We want to, you know, we don't want bad people running around the streets. At least at that first moment, <laughs> safety is a yeah. primary concern. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And, but is, you know, is locking these people away, you know, forever, is it always the best thing? And we, and we made sure we wanted to hear all voices. And so we, we heard from families you know, mm-hmm. people who've lost people and, you know, sure. some were, you know, some were supportive of, you know, perhaps second chance. Others are, you know, obviously these are these are deep wounds that mm-hmm. won't heal, and and they've got a voice too in this. But I wanted people to be able to talk about it and kind of create this space that. Uh, yeah. And we've seen on other levels, you know, criminal justice reform on a on a federal level uh, has, has taken place, and people have been have been set free. But I think um, you know. What we the other thing we knew is that the statistics show most of the people in prison are going to be out someday. So mm-hmm. they're going to be living in your neighbor. You're going to walking down the street with them. You're going to pass them in the grocery store, and we've got to figure that out. It is interesting when you think about. I don't know if people think about so much of the nature of punishment for the types of crimes. Like I've always wondered why certain types of crimes, which I'll call technical crimes, like let's say if you if you didn't pay something on time, like your taxes and that sort of thing, you know, where you could get years in prison for that, as opposed to you really doing harm to another human being, you know, whether it's rape or murder or these types of things where, you know, like child molesting is one of the big things where many people who are on that spectrum pretty much are going to keep doing that. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. one can of those— Can they be reformed? Yeah. yeah, like, can they be reformed? How do you protect society? Like a, a tax evader— are we protecting society by having that person behind yeah, bars I mean, I th- for and so I th- long? And I think we are seeing that distinction. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying we no, should all evade no, you're our saying taxes. anybody doesn't pay their taxes should be <laughs> yes, set free. Exactly, no. exactly. <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. No, but, uh, but those things, I mean, that's how we caught Al Capone, for Christ's sakes, you yeah. know? Like the tax evasion was seemed to be a, a bigger bar. Yeah, but I think we yeah. are, in, in the overall discussion, I think there is a delineation between— uh, um, Violent and nonviolent crimes. Absolutely, I, I think we're still struggling, uh, and, and and rightfully so, probably on the mm-hmm. issue of violent crimes. Right, and what and what should be the nature of punishment for that? Also, with um, age, seems to make a difference too. You know, it breaks my heart. Like when I see teenagers involved in that kind of stuff for whatever reasons, whether they fall into gangs, you know, at an early age, broken neighborhoods, or whatever, or when people make mistakes so early in their life and they're condemned to this life. And, and I met guys like this, you know, yeah. guys in their 40s and 50s and, and my age, 60, you know, who they were jailed as, as teenagers. And, you know, it did make me think. Now, I, mm-hmm. I was a, you know, I didn't get any trouble when I was a teenager. I don't have any great stories. But but I'm thinking, you know, you did stupid stuff. There's still stuff. time, Lester. But, yeah, there's stuff. <laughs> you know, you, you do think about, you know, that younger younger version of yourself who did super Sure, absolutely. And, and so you're sitting there, you're talking to them now. They're, they're in their 50s. And they're not the same person any more mm-hmm. than you and I are the same person we sure. were as as teenagers. And uh, at, at times, there was a little voice in my in my head screaming, "Why is this guy here? You know, mm-hmm. he, he's, he's, he's you know he seems like right. he's got his got his uh, head back on." I mean, each case is different, um, but we've got to be willing to look at them. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, uh, to be able to see these guys was important. You know, after we did that um, stay in Angola, then we mm-hmm. did a, a town hall meeting uh, at a prison in, in upstate New York. And uh, we had a number of incarcerated guys come down and be part of our audience. And uh, one thing that really touched me, they, they sent me as a group, um, many of the, of the inmates, they sent me this picture and they, and they all signed notes and just, just thanking you know, us sure. for, for taking the time to care and to hear their stories. And, and did was, you send them like a cake with the file on <laughs> it or something? <laughs> See, that would have been a good joke. <laughs> So you felt kind of a camaraderie uh, after this or something? Or? No, no, no. I don't <laughs> think uh, I don't think I would ever be comfortable. Uh, right. You know, the, I, I will tell you though the um, the wing that I stayed in was um, not solitary confinement, but it was closed cell restriction. And mm-hmm. It was an area um, 
where guys are in a cell, you know, by themselves, um, usually because they've gotten in some kind of infraction or they can't get along in the main population, but they're there for 23 hours a day. Mm-hmm. They get one hour to essentially walk the tier, so maybe you know, 50, 60 feet back and forth, and they get one hour a day outside by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, you know, I was let out every morning so I could go, you know, do my reporting you know, around the prison. But, um, you know, you, you look at these guys and, you know, laying on their backs and reading a paper book back novel and, you mm-hmm. know, they kind of talk among themselves down the tier. But I was like, just what's the emotional and mental sure. um, toll of, of that kind of incarceration? Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that, was, that was a thing I really struggled with, how I would be able to handle that kind of incarceration. Yeah. Can't imagine. Where are we with the death penalty now? Do you get a sense of how America feels? About, I feel like, well, I don't know if it was split. I feel like there's probably been more of a majority of people in favor of it, in favor of it than against it. Do you think that's kind of changed now? Yeah, I haven't looked at numbers recently. I, I, my, my my belief is that's what it comes down to that people still uh, support it. I um, back like, when like I was slightly probably. Or uh, yeah, I you think it's sixty forty maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I will tell you that. Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was a witness to an execution right, in yeah. Illinois in the uh, in the nineties. What was the uh, crime? It was uh, the inmate had been uh, convicted of murder. I believe he had raped a mother and mm-hmm. killed the child. Uh, it was a it was a horrific crime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember how surreal it was. It was in the late at night, and mm-hmm. they lead us out. It's a chilly night, and they lead us out to like this blockhouse. Are you with journalists? Or uh, there were with... jur- uh, there was a couple of other journalists, mm-hmm. um, law enforcement. Uh, uh, I don't remember if there were family members in there, but you, you, mm. you sit in these in these fold up chairs, and there's a window and a curtain, and the whole thing feels. Bizarre, and the curtain opens up, and mm. there's the warden on a headset, and the inmates lying there. And I remember, and this is this is not an editorial view. I understand this, but it, just, right. it was so surreal. And I remember, I almost wanted to. I had this urge to stand up and go, "Hold on a second, are we going to kill a guy here? Is, is, is yeah. the state about to take a life?" And I didn't. I don't want to say that. And like, this is my opinion. I'm anti death penalty. You know, it was more of. If we thought about what we're doing here, is mm-hmm. this and, and why are we doing and, and what's you know, um, it was a lethal injection, so there was nothing you know particularly you know visually horrific about it, but it was just the, it was just the, the whole thing just kind of flooded into my mind at that moment, like wow, this is what the death penalty is. It's a state, you know, legally mm-hmm. um, taking a life, and again, this was a this was a bad dude, um, but it, uh, it was really really. Um, a moment where I, that was probably the first time I began to really think about our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and is it working for us? Are we doing all the right things? Um, are we as good at this as, as we should be? Um, but that was, a, that was, a, that was a, certainly an important moment in my life. Yeah, a lot of people look at criminal justice, certainly from a racial perspective, you know, and that there's been, certainly there's uh, been an unfair incarceration of blacks over the years, you know, uh, in, in our more current environment, it seems like it could be kind of a poor issue, you know, in neighborhoods and that sort of thing. How how has uh, the history of black incarceration, did that have an effect on you at all when you were approaching criminal justice? Or did you see it more from that kind of perspective that you're talking about? No, now? and certainly the racial as well. It's one mm-hmm. of the things we talked about in Angola. I remember right. um, uh, there was, you know, Angola is built on slave plantation. Right. 
And so I went out one day. It was called a hoot nanny, where they put you on this tractor. Oh, hoot nanny, hoot nanny, yeah. <laughs> and and see, so they put you on this tractor with um, with other inmates. And this is mm-hmm. the, the, what they consider the lowest. Everybody's got a job at prison. This is the lowest job. They they take you out in this field. Some days it's picking cotton. This particular mm. day it was picking carrots. I'm out there with these guys, and I said to them, I said, you know, we're on a slave plantation, right? There's guards on horses with guns surrounding us, mm-hmm. um, and I said. Everyone out here, almost everyone out here looks like us. And they were like, yeah, you know, we think this is slavery. Now, of course, it's not slavery. They're paid, you know, a, a certain amount of money. And, and, the, and the, the prison folks will tell you, like, um, look, at virtually every piece of land and farmland in, in Louisiana was a, a slave plantation. But And there I, have been arguments about the post-Reconstruction uh, uh, era and how blacks— you know, how incarceration was kind of a substitution for slavery. It, it was, yeah. After, after <laughs> slavery, re- re- reconstruction, it's like, well, lock them up and, and, get, and get free labor. And so there's a, there's a huge legacy there. And I, I remember talking to the folks at the prison. I said, look, I get it. Um, mm-hmm. But do you think about the optics here? You know, I mean, you know, the way our criminal justice system does lock up, you know, a huge number of you know people of color. But then in that particular setting, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And mm-hmm. I looked around and like, wow, everybody looks like us. And we're out here, and, and, mm-hmm. and just the sight of those uh, uh, those corrections officers with you know with the rifles on on the horse horseback was yeah. you know it, it did send a chill across my back. Yeah, you know, um, I've, I can't say I've, I've had a similar road to you, you know, but I think we're in the generation where we were in positions where you happen to be the first black doing something, you know, and. Being in that position, you don't necessarily have the same relationship to it as maybe people observing it. You know, good point. Is that fair? You know, yeah. how have you how have you felt about that? Because you've been in those positions many times. You know, uh, particularly in, when you're anchoring and that sort of thing. And I think when you were at, you were in Chicago for a number of years, you were anchoring. Um, yeah. The the uh, local broadcast there. Well, a story that, that people many people may not know mm-hmm. and may not remember. Um, so I was. Uh, I was in New York working as a reporter at the mm-hmm. CBS station. Back in Chicago, the CBS station had um, demoted a popular um, African-American anchor, mm-hmm. replaced him with a white anchor. And it caused a big uproar in the community. Jesse sure. Jackson, Operation Push, essentially <laughs> yes. waged a boycott against right. the station. Um, and apparently it was hurting. Um I was hired in Chicago as a result of that. And one of the demands mm-hmm. was they wanted a black anchor. They wanted a black general manager. Um, and so it was a it was a road to my first you know, full-time anchoring job. And I remember, you know, I was in my late 20s. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a difficult position. Because yeah, you there's had, a lot you, of pressure. Yeah. A lot of pressure. You had, uh, you know, members mm-hmm. of the African-American community that, yeah, man, you're our dude. <laughs> yeah, and, brother, and, yeah. finally. And listen, it was, and it was yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I know there were other people like, well, this is the guy that was hired as a result of. And, uh, right, you, know, and you might have been given something. And right? I wasn't a fully mature, you know, human being at that point. I was in my 20s. And so it was a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a difficult way to to get there, but I, I felt like I, I certainly overcame it. But, um, so I'm, I'm familiar with the issue and I, and mm-hmm. I think like a lot of us, um, we'll be in situations and, you know, you kind of look around the room, how many, mm-hmm. how many of us Absolutely. are there. You've done that, right? I mean, completely. Yeah. That's um, what I mean. My career, I, I was at that point in the career when things were starting to change and we were getting more, the ability to create shows and that sort of thing. Right. So I, yeah. ha- I just happened to be the first in those positions, you know. Yeah. But what I will say mm-hmm. about um, being, you know, the first solo African-American anchor mm-hmm. of a nightly program, as I point out to people, it's not like there was a sign that said, you know, blacks need not apply. Mm-hmm. Um, these jobs were 
were, you know, there were only three of them, um, and they were all. There may not have been all, a sign, but there certainly wasn't an invitation either. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But by the time you know, by the time like there's the no one bust. <laughs> Come on over, brother. <laughs> yeah, but it was. I mean, the, the fact is, you know, there was nothing. You know, there was nothing open. Sure. Um, and and then suddenly the opportunity presented itself. But uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. I think what I'm mainly aware of is, is that people have shared it with me, is how much mm-hmm. it means to them. When, I, when, when people say, hey, you know, my son mm-hmm. watches you every night, and it just and it makes him feel so good to see somebody sure. of color. And that, that part, you know, you take oh, you know, great pride in him. Like, you know, like, a, like, you know, a lot of us, I mean, you know, we don't necessarily set out to be the black, whatever it sure. is. Um, but, you know, it, it does fill you with a lot of pride that yeah. not only that it, it – um, you're so much embraced, you know, by, mm-hmm. by kids of color, but also the fact that um, you've hope you've created a little more color blindness in the world. You know, as people watch sure. you for it's who a double you are. edged thing. Yeah, it is where it's embracing that part of it, but it's not necessarily have to be an agenda. You yeah, know, but that, you have, but you know, it's incumbent. You know, you have to speak up sometimes. Absolutely, and, and yeah. certainly, and uh, one of the, the most important part about diversity in a newsroom is helping us understand stories and, mm-hmm. and how they resonate in a particular community. Right, and so um, so it's not just racial, but you know, um, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. uh, religion. I mean, all those things are important because we literally sit around a table every afternoon, in the morning and the afternoon. As we prepare our broadcast, and you know, do we have this right? Is this the right story? Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes somebody can weigh in with, and and mention something that you know, I haven't thought of yeah. about how something is perceived. So, uh, you know, diversity is important certainly in our society, but for a broadcast that's trying to reflect a diverse nation, right. it's really important that we. Have and now voices. we can talk about diversity in a broad sense, but certainly coming up, there was more of a of a direct. Uh, you know, separation of black and white. I remember how important it was when Brian Gumbel was uh, hosting the uh, Today Show. A lot of people don't even remember yeah. those times. And and Lester, he's doing it with a white woman. I mean, yeah. I don't care if people say, you know, it's a few funny years it's, earlier. It's funny you said Brian Gumbel. Just the other day, I'm walking down the street and some guy goes, hey, Brian Gumbel. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I said, most people just call me Lester Holt. And then, of course, at that moment, oh, I'm sorry. Since you, you know. started talking, right? Yeah, but no, that was a big deal. Uh, oh, it was huge. Brian, frankly, was one of those guys that uh, you know, I looked at yeah. coming up, thinking, "Man, that's great! I can, yeah, I could do that." Um, he was, you know, that was a that was an important important role for and, all of us. And then you had Max Robinson, you yeah. know, the evening news. Uh, you know, when ABC had those rotating hosts or whatever. I yeah, think. they had. Uh, he was in Chicago, and they had right. an anchor in New York and in Washington. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, which was good. Did that? Uh, did you see that at that time and think, "Oh, it looks like we're making some progress." I there. did. I mean, you know, Ed Bradley, you know, of oh, 60, sixty Minutes fame Absolutely. was one of those guys yeah. I looked at. Um, but you know, I, I I was raised in a, in a household though that we were always, um, we were always you know told you can do anything. We there was never mm-hmm. we didn't really you know uh, we didn't really talk about you know, societal handcuffs in my, mm-hmm. my family. My parents were very encouraging. Sure, and you know when I was. Listen, I have a uh, I have a rejection letter that I've hung on to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I looked at the date. I think I was two months out of high school. Mm-hmm. It's a rejection letter from NBC. I had applied for a radio job in New York, and I get this. You know, thank you for your tape and resume. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly we're looking for. Best of luck in your career. And and I have that in my office, and I look at it sometimes. And I just smile. First of all, revenge is a, <laughs> is a dish. <laughs> serve cold. No, but right. uh, you know, I, I I think about that. I I did some kind of. I had a lot of audacity in my. I guess in my mm-hmm. coming up. That yeah, I can do that. I can, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to New York. I mean, yeah, you know, anchor in New York when I'm in my twenties, and why can't I? And uh, sure. Um, you know, I I, um, I left college 
uh, when I was uh, offered a, a, an opportunity to you know, go to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was at the time, it didn't seem like probably seemed yeah. like the right idea. And then, of course, I worried was it the wrong idea. And, yeah. and I, I encouraged you know, my boys are both college grads, and I, I don't sure. speak badly of uh, I have the higher same education. Experience. Did you really? Oh, absolutely. I left college to do a show at the time, you know. But for me, I, I call it, and this is the mentality back then is a little different. It's it's a going off to join the circus mentality. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because the circus represents your vocation and what you want to do in life. And you felt like, okay, this represents what I want to do, so it's time yeah. to go as opposed to the degree or that sort of thing opens the door for that. There are two different ways to look at that. Yeah, know? I mean, when I— when I Like uh, opportunity itself is the thing that yeah. had you go somewhere. And I think know? I told myself, maybe I fooled myself. I said, well, I'm just going to do this to get to this job, and I'm going to re-enroll sure. in, in school. But, I, you know, by the time I got to San Francisco and they gave me my own mobile unit with the radios in it and the mm -hmm. police scanners, and I'm oh, chasing yeah. big stories. I'm like, man, this is what I want to do. Absolutely. I'm, I'm here. And, uh, mm. and then next thing you know, I get this offer to go to New York and, and be on TV and just life kind of— you know, um, kind of just took over. Yeah, and uh, so it, it, you know, it would be disingenuous to say I regret right. uh, not completing my education. Um, there's things I wish I'd probably studied, you know, yeah. specifically. But uh, and it's uh, kids don't try this at home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, listen, this is where I'm at. But I, I think people are kind of reevaluating the role of education now. Well, first of all, it's so expensive. Oh. You know, and people think, am I getting the return for what I'm actually getting? And and some even majors that people choose don't seem to translate into vocations necessarily. Well, the student loan you thing know. is, of course, a, oh, it's a, crazy. a, a huge story. And it's, it's something you know that we're hearing on the campaign trail. But yeah, I mean, it's um, you know, it's everybody has to make hey, make the decision, and and you mm -hmm. know, it's certainly higher education is a wonderful thing. But, right. But yeah, at some point you have to review where do you want to be in life. Yeah. And what's your path? Do you, I? I know that your son is. Uh, now in your field, <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got two yeah. sons. My oldest, uh, who's uh, thirty two, he's uh, anchors the uh, local news yeah. in New York City for the NBC station. So he's actually at Thirty Rock. So you guys see each other? Though. Yeah, we do. You know, I'll, yeah. um, occasionally we'll do teases where I'll be on his show just talking about what's coming up next oh, on Nightly hilarious. News, and then I'll see him on the elevator. And and what I love about him is he's a uh, yeah. well, I love so many things about him, but. He's uh, he's never been afraid to embrace his parents. He was not one of those teenagers that you know was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. So I'll see him and you know, we'll chat something. Well, I got to go. All right, love you, Dad. You know, and I just right. you know in the workplace, it's very cool. You ever <laughs> give him the unsolicited advice about? That? I used to when he was coming uh -huh. up. His first job was in uh, a market in Florida, uh -huh. and yeah, it's. I, I can't remember if he'd send me the links or whatever, but I'd watch him and I'd I'd be giving him all kinds of advice. You know, do this with your hands and da 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 da. And mm -hmm. then I realized I was making him crazy. Um, and so I don't, you know, he's a seasoned newsman now. I just give him advice about the business, uh -huh. the politics of the business, navigating some of the issues in the newsroom, um, you know, how to present yourself, uh, mm -hmm. kind of that, that voice. Uh, um, but I don't need to tell him how to do his job anymore. He's, uh, right. he's good. And my, and my other son has uh, built a successful career in finance in New York City. So oh, that's I'm, great. I'm a very proud dad. Proud papa. And a granddad. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> where do you see uh, – yeah, I, I saw one thing that you said where you you felt this is – not that this is it, but, you know, I'm at the top of my field right now of what you're doing. You know, and there's yeah. kind of a satisfaction in that. But do you imagine a life after this or are there other things that you feel like you still want to do? And are they in journalism? Are they in other areas? You know, I'm or? glad you asked that question mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I don't want uh, – I don't want anybody to, you know, push me out the door. I think mm -hmm. I'll recognize when – you know, when there will be a time that I don't want to be on TV every sure. night, mm -hmm. um, it's it's a 
listen, it's, it's a difficult job. A lot, it absolutely a lot of pressure, is. and I enjoy yeah. doing this. But I, but I recognize, and uh, you know, I only half joke. My wife now is starting to think I'm serious. I'm like, I think in retirement, I want to start a wedding band. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a bass player, and I have. A, I, I do know that. I, I yes. have. I have a band. I'm like, I saw that. And I'm like, yeah. you know, how fun would that be? Because you know what? Think about being a wedding band. I'm just going to go off here. Oh, go so for here's, it. So here's what I think about a wedding band. Lester Holt. When, when he's is gonna, it? He's going to let us know when, how it works. No, when, is it, when do you dance? You dance. The <laughs> okay. only place you dance is at wedding receptions. And, and the only place I dance. Okay, I don't even dance at wedding you receptions. Don't, okay, <laughs> sorry, but most people, you know, they, oh, yeah, from sure. two year old to ninety, they're out there. That's and right. People having a good time. You're Absolutely. playing these cover songs. I'm like, well, the only problem is it means working weekends again, which I'm struggling with. Um, but no, I, I will probably, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I want to do. You know, further mm-hmm. my music career. Um, I'd like to write. Yeah, I've got a lot of great stories. I started a book one time. and A I, novel? I, I, uh, what, I'm sorry? A novel? Uh, no, not so much a novel. I, I want to do, you know, kind of an autobiographical, you know, thing. And, and mm-hmm. I, I did start to write one and, and visited, you know, a, a book agent. But then I just, you know, it, 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 that becomes a job, and I want it to not be a job. But see, Lester, you keep saying your life's not interesting. we got to change your mind about that. <laughs> you got to change this, and then you'll be excited to write about this stuff. Yeah, no, know? I— I, and I Your oh, life so, is unbelievably You know what I did? What, I wish I had done this early in my career, and I always <laughs> tell young journalists, I'm like, write it down. I know. You it's know? so true. Because— So you know, true. Yeah. Um, so, like, I, I started doing it, and uh, the first time I started doing it, it was kind of late, um, The when I was about to do the— uh, Trump Clinton debate, the first yes. presidential debate. Was that the one when he walked behind her? Uh, I think he walked. It was the second one. <laughs> I think it was that was the second. I did the first one, uh, right? And it was uh, it was the most stressful moment of my life. Sure. And I thought I gotta I gotta I gotta write this down. And so and I go back and look at it now and look at my feelings at the time and you know um, you know watching people talk about me on cable TV. What's mm-hmm. he going to ask? What's his bias? What's you know um, and. And I wish I'd done more of that because you you think you'll never you'll do things you never forget, but in right. this job you're you're moving on to so many you know, wild and crazy things you forget. So uh, I've got I've gotten to be a better journal writer now, mm-hmm. and I always encourage uh, you know young people who want to be in business to make sure you write it down. How often do you write in your journal? Um, you know, for I was writing it every day for a while. I've been pretty sloppy <laughs> since the beginning mm-hmm. of this year. Um, but I try and note like the big things, like the debate I did uh, you mm-hmm. know, this past week, Democratic right. debate. Just you know some of the observations because these are stories I am going to want to tell mm-hmm. um, at some point, and I, that I think are worth sharing. What should we know about that debate that people don't know behind the scenes? Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> Come on, spill the tea. Well, I, I don't know behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I will tell you when I came out. So my first question was going to be for uh, Senator Sanders, mm-hmm. and so I do the preamble, blah blah blah, and I start to ask the first question. And Elizabeth Warren is doing this. She's she's waving her hand. And so in in my mind, I'm like, oh man, I've already screwed up. Did I say the wrong name? Did I say her name? You know? Uh And I'm like, no, I'm going to follow this through to Sanders. Then I realized that was everybody wanted to get into the game early. But Mm -hmm. I had done, uh, I was part of the the questioners for uh, the first debate in the cycle, which was back in, what was that, in June? Right. I think. And they they were all kind of feeling each other out. But man, this one, they were ready to go. And it kind of bowled me over, you know, right from the get go. But it was, uh, uh, I'm trying to think what you didn't see. Um, you know, I couldn't during the commercial breaks. I couldn't always see because I was surrounded by people. But um, you know, sometimes you you would expect them to be a little kind of friendly. But there uh-huh. felt like the tension is pretty tense up there like, during in, the break. Into the break. Um, uh-huh. These um, did Bloomberg really? Cause the way he came across on television, he seemed really uncomfortable. Like. Oh, what the hell did I get into? Here? Yeah, I mean, I did think, it feel that way? Well, I mean, I arena? think we were all certainly in our questioning uh, mm-hmm. you know, when we were. There was this assumption that we knew 
where mm-hmm. they were going to hit him hard and what we were going to hit him on. And I think we were all perhaps surprised um, on his answers and some of the questions that we thought, you know, mm-hmm. he would have been uh, prepared, prepared for. for but yeah. I'll, I'll let the, you know, the pundits figure that all, all out. But it was uh, – um, it was it was it kind of bowled us all over that, that mm-hmm. and that first commercial break we all kind of looked at each other like wow we maybe we've over prepared all we needed to say was ready set go right and and they would have gone at it that's one thing I I try to I'm trying to figure out when I watch these debates like um, how much is is there a sharing of questions Do you guys go over each other's questions is there a wrangler of the questions like are you yeah, as the moderator. Not- do you have a role in saying, hey, you know, why don't you ask this or I'll ask this? No, or? it's a, it's a process that starts weeks in advance. We start meeting um, – mm-hmm. we, we, mostly we met the, the prior week um, for three or four hours every day. Mm-hmm. And we'd sit there and, and you know, you, you want to be real time. So, like, what's happening today? Who said what? And then figuring out the kind of the topic areas, you know, we want, we want to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then try to find a flow and try to find the wording mm-hmm. that will kind of force – an answer, um, you know, not too many softball pitches or things that the other candidates might seize on. So you're trying to game this all based on on their statements. A huge amount of fact checking. I know, you know, for example, um, from interviewing uh, Bernie Sanders in the past, he's one of those people that will turn it back on you very quickly. He'll challenge the premise of your question. So you mm-hmm. have to be prepared for that. So we've got a whole fact team. And then once we got to Vegas that week, uh, we met for several hours every day around mm-hmm. a big conference table. This is, you know, 20, 25 people. And then we develop the questions, and then even then that night where, you know, you're looking at what's in the news and what's being said. And then once we're on the air, we've got this list of questions, but, you know, the rhythm is going to change depending on what they do. So yeah. in our ear, there's a producer who's, mm-hmm. who's in the control room who's watching all this who's saying, okay, uh, Lester, go to question 24, you know, trying to keep up with them. Or, you know, Chuck, you know, Lester's going to ask one more question. He's coming to you. So this is going on. You're listening to that. You're trying to listen to the candidates because you right. don't want to miss something. Um, so and it's television too, so there's got to be a, oh snap! Elizabeth Warren is on tilt. You got to let this keep. Yeah, yeah, and that was and that was, and that was the other thing we wanted to go in and, and make sure that not get in their way. If there was if there was a point of mm-hmm. conflict, which apparently there were more than a few the other night, uh, let it let it play out. That's that's what a debate is. We didn't want to be. I mean, there was a there was a time frame, but we didn't want to be time cops and like oh sorry, you can't finish that thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought some of the exchanges were the most telling uh, parts of the debate when they were challenging each other and that. That, to me, is what a debate is. Our goal and my goal in these things is to have people talking about the mm-hmm. guys on the stage, not us. And I, I think we were pretty successful at that, that, you know, um, it was, I guess, the most watched Democratic debate uh, mm-hmm. um, in history. And that, you know, people, for the most part, have been talking about the candidates and not the, those of us behind that table. How important do you think the debates are? I think people are feeling, well, it's been said that Bloomberg is kind of maybe changing the importance of it by his – this kind of blitz ad campaign, you know, and Trump, when he became president, arguably he lost those debates, but it didn't seem to matter, you know, where it seemed to have more of a mattering, um, even with Obama and Romney, it seemed very important who was going to win the debates. Do you think it's less important who perceived winners of these things are now? Well, I mean, it's important in terms of their fundraising, if they have a, you know, what's considered if a good If they're looking night. for money. Yeah, right? and, and that helps. But in terms of the voters, I don't know. I don't I mean, know it's, if it I does, mean, right? One of the things we're seeing in, in, in politics in general right now is people kind of, they get their position and they're they're good. You know, they get the team colors and, and the hat and, uh, and they are where they are. I mean, but we've never seen it. Uh, a primary race like, race like this, you mentioned uh, Michael Bloomberg has spent a lot of money, and sure. and any even any you know negative thoughts about his performance, you can certainly be you know 
He's got a loud megaphone is what I'm saying of, mm-hmm. of being able to spend a lot more. So that dynamic we're going to going to see play out in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll we'll know you know with maybe the results in Nevada if if it shifts from from what we saw in the polls that maybe had some impact. But certainly I felt and I, I'm not I don't declare winners or losers. But what I will say is and what I came away from that night was um, I think for the most part the candidates were the best versions of themselves. In mm-hmm. other words, whether you like them or not, yeah. they kind of laid it bare. This is, you know, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And yeah. uh, I tend to, um, you know, just personally, as I'm watching, and it's, I'm, I'm sitting there at, mo- at one moment kind of playing spectator, and I'm thinking not so much their answers, but, you know, which which one of these could I see as president in the United States? Mm-hmm. And that's a different question sometimes than Absolutely. the one who's the better debater. Or, Completely. Or, 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 or who's, you know, who snapped who. Right. Um, and I think that that's, that's how I view it. And I just, I just got to go with this process because I've watched them like, okay, who could I see, you know, with that presidential seal on the podium at some yeah. time of crisis or, you know, uh, important moment in, in history. And I think Trump has kind of busted open the, even that being a thing, you know, I mean, he, I felt even especially, I mean, the opposition, of course, is the opposition. But when you think about the never Trumpers and the people on the Republican side, they couldn't imagine Trump being the president, you know. And the I think our ability to imagine who can do that has kind of been broken apart, you know. Like, that's why I, I tell people, first of all, I think Trump's going to get reelected. That's just my opinion. But I also acknowledge that any of those people could be president. Like, I can't, I can no longer put it in who's the most presidential? Like, that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, you know I, I, for obvious reasons, I try not to drag into sure. to, to, to the whole you know, yeah, Trump world thing. Yeah, it's not a Trump drag. But, but, I will say, um, but I will say, one of the things I've wondered, I mean, there's, there's no question um, this administration has been like none other. I mean, they've gone places mm-hmm. and, and broken, you know, uh, a lot of what we consider the kind of the rules of, of, of the job. And I do find myself wondering sometimes, has the mold of, of a president right. changed? that's what I mean, yeah. Um, you know, presidents were... You know, kind of boring, or you know, that's not a good use, but word. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, they were they they followed a certain set of rules of, sure. of decorum, and they were known in the political world at least too. You know, I mean, yeah. so, that's I, what I, so mean. I don't Trump know. So, really came from out of nowhere. So I wonder yeah. whether it's whether it's you know um, you know next January or four years from now, what will what will the presidency, what will the office look like, and yeah. how will people regard the office? I think that's going to be one of the uh, the interesting. For me, one of the interesting things to kind of follow, what will yeah. the tone of, of politics um, be? Um, or or is, have we seen a permanent change mm-hmm. that it's, that it's um, you know, Twitter certainly has changed the game uh, yeah. in that um, um, President Trump has been, you know, very adept at using Twitter as a, as a, a workaround of the media. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's something I could see being replicated mm-hmm. on a broader scale by, by others. And, uh, you know, they want to get around the filters and, and understandably why. But I think our role is, of course, to hold feet to the fire and hold you know, our leaders accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that may be a permanent change in, in the relationship. And that's going to be a challenge for the media. Yeah. Outside of politics. And thank you so much, Lester, for giving me your time. No, you know, it's, I mean, I rarely get to 
hear you talk like this. No, another brother with eyeglasses. (laughs) No, it's awesome. It's so great. I just have to say, just honored that you're here. It's just awesome. Thank you. Um, But I would like to ask, um, before we go, are there any stories you'd like to see more of maybe in nightly news? I mean, because we we are so tired of politics and all that. Do you have a wish list or or do you have— do you wish you could do more of a certain type of thing? Well, one of the things that I'm very interested in besides is, you playing bass, you know, <laughs> I think you should. I think the news should go out with you on bass, you know. Like. Well, you know, I did. I, I was. Uh, I got to play with the Roots one day on on, uh, oh, on, on Jimmy's great. show, and, yeah. and they we did they did a version of the uh, da, 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 right, and, I, and right. I was playing the bass. Oh, that's nice. And that was fun. Yeah, wouldn't that be fun? No, the the stories that I'm passionate about. I think that I think. Uh, the cyber world is just fascinating. Mm. I mean, that we, you know, we, our, our whole lives are now mm-hmm. in, in ones and zeros. And and I think, you know, security and privacy, those things, those are, you know, maybe I'm a little paranoid, but I think mm-hmm. that's a huge story. And, we're, and we do a lot of that. I, and, you know, consumer stories, because I think we've all, you know, we, it, the Trump presidency took us all by storm. And mm-hmm. of course, we were all trying to figure out, you know, the, the diet of this stuff every day. Mm-hmm. And I think we, you know, we've, we've come to that place where we cover politics aggressively, but we understand that, you know, people come home at night, they're not necessarily talking about what president Trump they're, sure. they're, 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 you know, consumer issues and their safety and, and, and you know, security. Um, and we try to remind ourselves of that every day, there's other stuff mm-hmm. out there that people want to know, but we also have to make sure that we give them another view of the world. That's not always so negative and, yeah. and, and a way to, you know, I know it's not necessarily our job to lift people up, but mm-hmm. we understand that people expect some of that. And um, and I personally want to, you know, be able to walk away from the newscast and think, okay, mm-hmm. the world's not entirely messed up. You know, there's, there's yeah. some good stuff happening, and we want to be able to reflect all that. He's supporting the storm for us, you guys. <laughs> Every evening, the NBC Nightly News. I like to think of what you're doing as kind of like the cousin is the fireside chat, you know. Oh. That's, it's kind of the relationship to America that's kind of— it to me the you know it has a direct correlation to radio and that relationship that was kind of established there. That's what the nightly news kind of represents to me is that type of fuzzy, warm relationship. You're old you school. Know? I like that. I am old school. No, I know? like that. I, I, I think that's because that's the way. I you think know, it's was, an important relationship. That's the way you know? it was for me. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I remember you know Walter Cronkite getting kind of giddy when when man landed on the moon. Uh, and, it was one of my favorite images. Of, I was a big space geek. Still, yeah, am, yeah. Know? I'll never forget that. I, I know exactly. What have you, hey, have about. you watched this show on uh, Apple TV for all mankind? I haven't seen that you, yet. You'd That's love the it. reimagining. It's basically that, reimagining yeah. that um, the Russians get to the, to the moon right. first, and yeah. that the space race doesn't stop; it continues. Sure. On. That's the premise. Um, yeah. But if you're into, I just mentioned that. I, I, Is it good? Yeah, I just finished binge watching, and it was uh, it was kind of fun to. Yeah. You know, and some of the you know. Neil Armstrong is in it. I mean, some of the sure. characters, and uh, it's kind of this. I like alternative history. Yeah, those things are very interesting. Yeah. See, but I'm also a history kind of. <laughs> this is so geeky. Like, I'll go back and watch the original broadcast. Really? really? <laughs> oh, it's fascinating because I like to see how people were acting in real time. You know? Yeah. And because you lose those things through the the recounting of history, they only recount the big things, but you lose the little things of how like phrases people use. You know? Yeah. Customs of the day and that sort of thing. I tell you, one of my favorite documentaries last year was Apollo Eleven. Yeah, I saw that on airplane. It, it was terrific. I'm less seeing that on the big screen though. 
it's so immersive. And but you get the experience. Remember the scene where people are like, "What are they talking about now?" But <laughs> I have to mention this. But the scene where everybody is collecting to watch it. Yeah. And I'm looking at the culture. Then I'm like, "What are people wearing?" You know. Who, yeah. What, what are these lives that people? You see a young Johnny Carson. You know, walking into the crowd there. No one's even paying attention to him because this thing is bigger than a celebrity. It is interesting to see how people yeah. have people receive things. You know, one of the things I talk about sometimes is. Uh, um, you know, 9-11 was one of those moments, of course, the world stops. Yeah. And everybody is glued to their televisions. Right. They're standing there. Um, those of us who were in the business never had that experience. Yeah. We were covering it. I know. Um, yeah, I remember true. You know, the day it happened, you know, being, mm-hmm. being on the phone with my children, making sure they were safe in, in Manhattan. But, but um, and I remember it was the one-year anniversary mm-hmm. is when the, the real emotion hit me. Because wow. in, the, in the heat of it, you know, of course, mm-hmm. you're, you're sad, and you're, you know, but there's so much going on. You're covering this this incredible story. Um and I remember thinking, wow, I miss that moment mm. of, you know, the country just stopping and yeah. people not working, just, you know. Um, and, and it also gave me an appreciation for what we do, though, Absolutely. is that at those kind of moments, we are the voice mm-hmm. of here's what we know, here's what we don't know. And that, um, you know, we, I don't, we don't see as many of those moments um, now things tend to move at a much faster pace. Yeah, where Big we have, stories don't have legs on them anymore. Yeah, or uh, where we have that collective moment where we're brought together by just even like when you mentioned Cronkite, you know, the other thing where Cronkite is him choking up on the JFK assassination yeah. and how that's become this emblazoned in our minds, even if you weren't there or experienced it, even if you're watching NBC News at the time, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Huntley and Brinkley or whoever it was, the, the Cronkite you know, kind of speaking for America and that type of thing. It's so interesting. And it was, and it was okay. Yeah. He yeah. had this moment of emotion, but it was, it was in, in the moment. Right. And, um, but, uh, yeah, those are, I mean, and it reminds me of the, of the, of the power and the significance. You know, you talk about of, of the nightly news broadcast, mm-hmm. they are still relevant that way. And I think they still become that place where, you know, people are busy and, and, you know, a lot of people tell me they watch me on DVR now, right. you know, but there are still those times, those moments that people, you know, you People crowd around the TV set in their own way now, or maybe it's their phone uh, sure. to watch this. But um, there's there's still, I think, a, a, a huge relevance Absolutely. to this broadcast. Okay, before we go, I'll mention this one thing. This is one, my one kismet interaction with The Nightly Show that I don't think I've told many people about. This is kind of fascinating, okay? My brother—this is back in my stand-up comedy days, like in the early 90s, I think. And we used to watch The Nightly News all the time. Um, my brother— uh, he wrote jokes for Jay Leno sometimes. And, you know, you write jokes out of that. But I never recorded it or that type of thing. And one night my brother just happened to record the 90 News because he was going to be out. NBC 90 News. I think it was Tom Brokaw at the time. And there was a story about drive-in movie theaters. You know, my brother said, you have to watch this. And what? And he said, Larry, I never take the news. This is the one night I take the <laughs> And I go, what is it? And so it's a story about the demise of drive-in movie theaters and how it's going out of vogue. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And then it showed somebody in their car watching television at the drive-in movie theaters, <laughs> like on this little portable television. And on the television is me on Star Search. Are you kidding me? <laughs> doing your stand-up. Me on Star Search <laughs> doing my stand-up. I never thought about Star Search. On the news. nightly news. And uh. I'm like, what are the odds of this, this intersection? My brother just happened to tape it. That is my kismet interaction that with the is, NBC nightly news. That is wonderful. You're in our there archive somewhere. I'm in there. I'm actually there. <laughs> Lester Hope, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. This was fun. All right. Thank you. Thank you.